Thank you. Pull it back up again. Thanks, Peter, for sharing those things of uh, your experiences of last year. We think, wow, some of us thought we had a difficult time, but others obviously have more difficult times, and it's great to hear of how God works in people's lives and how we can r r trust and rest in his promises, yeah? So great. You said you had some sleepless nights and... I remember reading somewhere where it said, if at night you cannot sleep, talk to the shepherd, don't count the sheep. And that's great, isn't it? So let's talk to him now as we come to his word. Our gracious God and Father, we just want to give you our thanks and praise for the way you've revealed yourself to us in and through creation, in and through your word, and especially in and through your son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to your word now, we pray that you will grant us Hearts that will hear and obey, and your spirit will grant us that understanding that we need. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at Psalms 91, 92, and 93 and see what they have to say to us about safety and security, about worship and praise of God and proclaiming his greatness and about God's majesty and holiness and strength. Now, most of the Psalms in the Bible tell us who the author is. And there's authors like David, Solomon, Moses, Asphath, uh, sons of Korah, and so on. However, our Psalm today, Psalm 91, does not tell us clearly who the author is. Jewish theologians have always worked on the premise, or a lot of them have worked on the premise, that if a psalm does not mention the author's name, then you look at the last psalm where the author was named and you apply that same author to this psalm. And so as Psalm 90 is said to be written by Moses, then most Jewish people would say Psalm 91 is also written by Moses. But then... We don't know for sure, don't we? But it is amazing that even though the author of such a, a beautiful portion of scripture as this is unknown, through God's divine inspiration and guidance, these words have been indeed such a great comfort to literally millions and millions of people throughout, well, throughout the pages of history. Psalm 91 has a reputation for being the psalm that people turn to when they are in need of help or deliverance. In fact, I read that in America, this psalm is known by many Christians as being, the, or being Psalm 911, or the emergency psalm that you turn to when you are scared or in trouble or in need of God's help. And why not? For Psalm 91 provides us with some wonderful images of safety and security in the face of all kinds of dangers. A security that comes from resting in the shadow of the Almighty. But the overriding question for us this morning is, what does that mean? What are we to make of these amazing promises? The psalm warns of hidden traps, 
deadly plagues, terrors at night and arrows by day, stumbling over rocks and facing lions as snakes. And in one sense, in a country like Australia, it might seem that we live in relative freedom from dangers or troubles. I mean, we've not really faced any major war for over 75 years, and we've been able to reasonably well control diseases of all sorts of things uh, in this country, well, until COVID hit us a couple of years ago. And yet, on the other hand, when you stop and think about it, the dangers described in verses 13, or sorry, 3 through to 13 of this psalm, are not too far removed from us in our contemporary scene. We encounter terrorist attacks. We have hostage situations. We have reckless drivers who mow down people in pedestrian plazas. And then, of course, there's the increasing number of shootings and murders that are happening all around Australia. The reality is that there is no one that is free of trouble or fear. And that includes Christians and non-Christians. Everyone here this morning will probably be dealing with some degree of fear in their life, fear of illness, of poverty, of marriage breakdown, of violence. Maybe you're troubled about some uh, terminal illness that you might be dying from. And we could go on and on with a list like that. You see, this psalm does not promote a health, wealth and prosperity gospel. Christians are not promised a happy, healthy and trouble-free life. There are so many things from which I think all of us would be glad to find shelter and protection and security. I think of how Jesus said to his disciples, you will suffer because of me. The psalm begins with a wonderful picture of what it is to be a Christian, to be one of God's chosen and loved people. If you have your Bibles with you, you might like to look at verses 1 and 2 again. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, He is my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. A believer is someone who dwells in God, who has God as their fortress and refuge. You see, what really matters about a person lies deep within them and it concerns where they find their refuge. Where do they go to for shelter? Some people today believe that when the going gets tough, then the tough go shopping. Yeah, they go shopping, so they head off to the Galleria or Westfields to take their minds off their problems. It's like they seek comfort with material things. Some people wear straight to the local pub and they hope that the alcohol will help them to forget their problems. Well, at least for a short time anyway. But a Christian is someone who dwells in God and for whom God is their fortress and refuge. So that when the going gets tough, it is to God that they turn to for sustaining help and strength and protection. 
Don't you just like the image of resting in the shadow of the Almighty? Since we came to Perth, it seemed more necessary and I think I found that most people think the same way that we want to find a place that is refreshing and revitalising and protective, especially from the sun and the heat. And so we might seek that in the shadow of, say, a big tree. Well, a Christian is one who finds their rest, their shelter, their protection, their refuge in the almighty God himself. As Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength. Notice from verses 9 and 10 that a Christian lives in two places. Verse 9 says, If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the Most High your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come to your tent. A Christian lives in their tent. Or in my case, in a unit in Hay Street near the Perth Mint. They also live in God. If you make the Most High your dwelling. And this is surely speaking about our inward nature, yeah, our, uh, our innermost being. Physically, we live in our homes, but spiritually, we live in God. For remember, it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being. The Apostle Paul says, Since we have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. As we read those first couple of verses, did you notice that the writer here uses four different names or titles for God. And I think that in itself is there to encourage us to trust him. He is, first of all, the Most High, El Elyon. And we see this title again back down in verse 9. God is higher than any of the kings of the earth and he is way higher than any of the false gods of the nations. He is the Most High. And that's the title that the angel Gabriel used when he uh, appeared to Mary and said to Mary that she was going to have a unique child. He said to her that this child will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The second name or title used of God here is the Almighty. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient, all-powerful God who is able to cope with any and every situation. Thirdly, he is Jehovah, or I feel a bit more modern, Yahweh, the covenant-making God who is faithful to his promises and is often referred to as Lord in the Bible, capital L, capital R, capital R, capital D. All capitals, when you see the word Lord in Scripture, in capitals, that is Jehovah. And then we have at the end of verse 2, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> where God is simply called God, Elohim. 
the name given in Genesis to the all-powerful, all-creating God. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. He is the powerful God whose greatness and glory surpasses anything we can ever imagine. And it is this God, the almighty and sovereign God of the universe, who invites us into an intimate fellowship with him. The message seems clear. Those who dwell or abide in him are safe as they do his will. Verse 10, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. It is this God that the psalmist declares, in whom I trust. Notice how <coughs> here we're, we're told that it needs to be a personal trust in God. A personal trust is essential. And notice the positive, oh, not the positive, the possessive and personal pronouns that are used in verse 2. Martin Luther once said, many people are lost because they cannot use personal and possessive pronouns. It's not good just simply knowing that God is the refuge. He must be my refuge, my fortress, my God. Are we living out the truth that we know about God? For whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Isn't it interesting that the safest and most secure place in all the earth is a shadow, if it is indeed the shadow of the Almighty? But what then are we to make of these amazing promises of verses 3 through to 12? How are we to relate to those promises that are described? Or how, sorry, how are we to relate those promises to those who are described in verses 1 and 2? Well, let me read them again for you. Surely he will save you from the foulest snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terrors of night, nor the arrows that fly by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Those words sound great, don't they? Really great. Here are seven powerful symbols of God's protection. Shelter, shadow, refuge, fortress, being under his wings, a shield and a rampart. Great words. One scholar said that it's words like this and this psalm that you find on the texts that are written on posters that people 
put up on the back of their toilet doors so that when you sit on the loo, you can stare at a picture of, say, an animal or a sunset and read, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Very profound words for a toilet door. Yeah. But how are we to apply these verses to Christians who, say, have been killed or injured in a terrorist attack or who have uh, drowned in the Queensland floods or who have lost their home and all their possessions in a bushfire or has had a, a loved one so severely struck down by, say, COVID or like some of my uh, refugees that I know have actually watched loved ones being killed in Afghanistan because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Did God's people in the Old Testament enjoy a degree of protection that we don't see happening with Christians today? Did the psalmist merely use poetic license to exaggerate the things so that he could achieve a comforting effect for his readers? Or is this all about Jesus? Many Bible scholars believe that the Messiah is the you of verses 3 through to 12. You see, in the Hebrew text, the word you is singular, not plural. It refers to an individual, not to a group of people. Verse 3, surely he will save you, singular, from the foulest snare and from deadly pestilence and so on. In our New Testament reading from Matthew chapter 4, we have a divinely inspired commentary as we read of how Satan himself quoted verses 11 and 12 to Jesus as Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, suggesting that they were a very good reason for Jesus to throw himself off the top of the temple. You can sort of hear the taunt coming from Satan, can't you? You know, go on, prove it. Prove that you are the Son of God. Go on, jump. The angels will save you. Satan had absolutely no problem applying these promises to Jesus, did he? And Jesus did not deny being the benefactor of this psalm. Rather, instead, Jesus said that God calls us to trust him and not to test him. But I think the clue for understanding these verses come in verse 8 of our psalm. Verse 8. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. What's being described in these verses is the punishment of the wicked. I think this is a picture in physical terms of judgment day that will come as suddenly and unexpectedly as a trap, that will come as dangerously as a deadly disease and as universally, uh, as universal as daylight and as certain as night. It will be as terrifying as warfare and as horrific as a dreadful plague that will wipe out thousands upon thousands. And in the face of all of that, in the face of God's certain judgment on the wicked, on those who ignore him and who live for themselves, the Christian, the one who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, is safe. 
History tells us of how one day God sent his son Jesus, the only one who has ever fully trusted God, the only one in whom there was no sin, the only one that was not wicked. Jesus, who by refusing to be distracted by the devil's temptation, put himself deliberately through all the punishment that God's judgment on sin and wickedness involved. Jesus puts himself through the agony and the suffering and even the separation from God on the cross. And he emerges unscathed to to defeat Satan once and for all, to provide the pathway from darkness to light. When Satan quoted verses 11 and 12 to Jesus, he should have read on to verse 13. Verse 13 says, You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Verse 13 is fascinating, yeah? Because Jesus is the one who would tread down Satan under his feet. Jesus is the one that was spoken of right back in Genesis chapter 3, back in the beginning, who would be the seed of the woman that would come and crush the serpent's head. The cross and the resurrection broke Satan's power, the power of sin and death once and for all time. It's interesting how the lion and the serpent are two well-known descriptions used of Satan in the scriptures, especially in the New Testament. 1 Peter 5 says, Be alert and sober, and sorry, of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Again, in Genesis 3, in the Garden of Eden, Satan is referred to as the serpent. And then if you go right to the other end of the Bible, in Revelation, Revelation 20 verse 2, that speaks of that serpent of old who is the devil and Satan. And the you of verse 3 is the one who will stand victorious over them both. The final verses of the psalm again speak first and foremost of Jesus. If you look down to verse 14... Because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's the promise of resurrection and ascension. It's like the Old Testament prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And he has suffered, sorry, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Or in the words of Psalm 91, with long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. The punishment we deserve for our wickedness has been dealt with by Jesus. The pestilence, the arrows, the darkness, they were all borne by him on the cross. And so as Christians, we enter into the experience of this psalm through Jesus. 
All of this, all of these promises are now ours in Christ. You see, Jesus himself is the benefactor of the promises of this psalm and because we are now in Christ, those same promises are also true for us. Because he was faithful even to death on a cross, verse 4, his faithfulness becomes our shield and our rampart. Because he bore in our place all the horrors of verses 3, 3 to 8, that is God's judgment on sin, we won't have to. We will only experience that as onlookers. That's verse 8. We will only observe with our eyes the punishment of the wicked. And boy, thanks be to God for that, yeah. But that's not to say that this psalm has nothing to say about our safety and protection right now in the, well, in this present day world. Among the blessings of verses 14 to 16 is God's deliverance and protection. And yes, that miraculous protection and deliverance that God provided for Jesus was not for his earthly benefit, but to fulfil or so that God would fulfil his purposes for Jesus. I think it's Warren Worsby who said, Jesus was not preserved from suffering, but for suffering. God brings us under his shelter and shadow so that we might fulfil his purpose for us. You see, this is not a promise of longevity, of long life. It's a promise of purpose and meaning for our lives. In and through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we now dwell in the shelter of the Most High and we rest in his shadow. And as we do that, we begin to know the presence and purpose of God for us in our lives and God brings us into his shadow in order that we can be rested and refreshed and then go on to serve him. Now, the image of a shadow is not a static one, is it? I mean, shadows don't move quickly, but they do move. I know that a lot of thought goes into where you park, or at least some people, a lot of thought goes into where you park, especially in a hot climate. Do you park your car in a nice and shady spot only to come back and find it in bright sun at lunchtime? <clears throat> or do you park it in the sun so that you know that when you come back at lunchtime it's going to be in the shade? It's one of those things. Shadows are not static things, are they? We have a, a, a son, our second oldest son. He went to a camp once uh, with his school and down to a beach. And he said he lied down on the beach in the shade of a tree his arms like this over him, and he fell asleep. When he woke up a couple of hours later, he was in bright sunshine, and for something like three or four weeks, he had these two handprints on his chest. It's amazing. Shadows move. To stay in the shade, or the shadow of something or someone, you will need to be active. And in our relationship with God, as we rest in the shadow of the Almighty, we are to seek 
not the static comfort and security of God's protection, but the meaning and purpose for God's will for us. What does God want us to be doing? What is it that God would have me do? How does God want me to serve him? And don't forget, as you read passages like this and as you think that way, to use personal and possessive pronouns, yeah? <clears throat> For when we seek to be at the centre of God's will, then we will enjoy the centre of his security and protection. Those eight blessings at the end of the psalm are assured for those who love the Lord and who acknowledge his name and who call upon him. In those last couple of verses, God said, I will rescue him, I will protect him, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble, I will deliver him and honour him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. John Wesley used to say, I am immortal until my work is done. And by that, he didn't mean that he would never die, but that my mortal life will not end until my work for God here on earth is done. And friends, that's true for all of us. No matter what hardships and challenges or illnesses life may throw up against us, our mortal life will not end until we have accomplished what God would have us do. Psalm 91 is not about a secure life here on earth. It doesn't promise God's people a happy, healthy and trouble-free life. It's about eternal life with God that begins now when we accept Christ, when it begins now amid the many tribulations and trials of life until death finally brings us into God's presence where we'll be forever, where there will be no more pain and suffering. God's promise is that we will reach his permanent shelter because we are in Christ. And in Christ, nothing will stop us from reaching our eternal dwelling place. Paul says in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In real estate, it's location, location, location. But here in this psalm and in the scriptures, it's talking about protection, 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 isn't it? And how secure is that? In amongst all of those things, all of the problems of life, we are not just simply survivors. We are conquerors. In fact, we are more than conquerors, not because of any of our great capabilities, but through him who loved us, that is, through Jesus. What is it you fear in life? What is it that troubles you? It's been said that the opposite of fear is not courage, but faith. It's verse 2. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge, my fortress, my God, in whom I trust. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High 
will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Firstly, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his death and his resurrection on our behalf, taking that punishment that will be there for the wicked. But Father, we thank you too for the promises that you give us of sustaining us, of encouraging us, of giving us that rest and just sustaining us through difficult and troubled times. And Father, we pray that you will help us to be those who seek to know what it is you would have us do and you would help us in Christ to be working for you and serving you in all we say and do. Father, continue to bless us. Thank you for your past blessings. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.